On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about Twitter, which has made a decision, as you know, about Donald Trump, which I think a lot of people are going to agree was a good decision, but has it set a bar now that it's going to have a hard time meeting regularly when other people do similar things? We'll talk about that one. We're also going to be joined by Don Robertson talking about coaching and Mike Babcock and football and all kinds of stuff. Grab a drink. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It's an excellent piece right now. You can read it online at the National Post. I mean, not right now. Stick around for this. Read it during the break afterwards. Uh, But it's an excellent piece online right now uh, that makes the case that Twitter was right to expel Donald Trump from its service for incendiary comments that he made. Some people may have an issue with this. I think most people probably don't. I think most people probably understand uh, some are framing it as a free speech issue. Twitter is a private business, so they can really do what it wants. It's not really a free speech issue. However, and yes, there is a however, or there is a but to this one. While the decision may have been correct, Twitter has now set a bar of sorts. Having banished one very, very well-known and very big-time user, but having banished someone for these kind of comments it now has to follow up and do the same for others, does it not? And this is not a complaint. This is a, wait, maybe we're onto something here. Maybe this is a good thing for social media to start weeding out the stuff we don't want, but it has to do this, does it not now? Question is, will it? And that question of will it probably is going to tell us an awful lot about whether this was a move made because Twitter and the people behind it philosophically believe they want to clean this stuff up or whether there was politics behind this. Matt Gurney is a columnist with the National Post. He's an author of this piece. He's also a host on Sirius Satellite Radio, contributor to McLean's Magazine and TV Ontario. He joins us now. Matt, thanks for doing this today. Always a pleasure. Good to be here. Uh, Look, I I think, as I said, I think most people think that this was a warranted move to get rid of Donald Trump off Twitter. I think most people would be on board with that one, even if they are conservative or Republican or whatever. But it really does create a bit of a conundrum for Twitter because there's tons and tons of trash that's flying around out there. They have now, as I say, kind of set a bar to say, you've got to now do this across the board, do they not? Yeah, well, I mean, here's the fun thing. If if they have any intellectual consistency, if they have any moral courage, they will. Um, I guess we find out now if if either of those things is actually true. I mean, what they've done is not just remove the president, but as I noted in my column, they did so and gave specific reasons where they said that he was uh, making statements that were likely to contribute to violence and that there were comments... And uh, evident, pardon me, there was evidence, I should say, that his comments were indeed contributing to violence. Okay, you know, we can argue that. I, I've had my inbox filling up all day with people saying, oh, Trump's tweets were perfect, you're just a communist, show me, show me the incitement to violence. But let's actually not even have that argument. Let's assume for a minute, and I'm not asking anyone to, to believe me on this, but let's assume for a minute that that's true, or at least that Twitter believed it was true. As I said in the column, what they've done here is that they have laid out what I kind of call the Trump rule, which is that if any account is making comments that Twitter judges to be at a risk of uh, creating violence, and if Twitter judges 
that those comments are creating the violence, you have the outlines of a, of a precedent, of a new rule that's been set by the decision to remove Donald Trump. It might be easy when it's the president of the United States and the U.S. Capitol has just been overrun by hooligans. That's kind of a situation where you can go, ooh, yeah, okay, this is pretty clear-cut. There's an obvious problem here. Twitter is now going to spend the rest of its existence being um, attacked on every side because every tweet that is in the slightest bit ambiguous that could potentially contribute to violence and is possibly actually doing so, Twitter is now going to have to do what it did with the president and make judgment call after judgment call after judgment call. Problem with judgment calls? People are never going to agree with all of them. You might get a lot of people most of the time, but you're never going to get all the people all the time. Twitter is going to be doing this for the rest of its life. Again, like I said, assuming they have any consistency. Maybe they just blow Trump off the platform, declare a mission accomplished, and never worry about it again. In which case, I think they're going to be hearing from some people. Well, and, and where this gets really interesting, especially for Twitter, and you can put this to all social media, but it was about a year and a half or two years ago that Twitter's CEO, a guy named Jack Dorsey, gave an interview and he acknowledged in that interview with the head of the uh, NYU Journalism School, the staff at Twitter is so liberal that the few conservatives don't even feel safe to express their viewpoints. So if, if now, if you then don't follow through with this, you turn this from being, I think, a fair philosophical point of view that you're trying to save the world or save people from violence into something that it just makes it a political thing. I think if they were smart, and I, I'm not convinced that they are, but if they were, they would probably want to find some kind of third-party independent determination for this. So you grab a couple of people, uh, maybe three people, uh, and you make them an, an impromptu jury. You, you get a raging liberal, you get a rabid righty, and you grab someone with a, a more moderate temperament, and you do it with people who have uh, good credentials. You, you don't probably don't want to use politicians. Maybe you go to the think tank world or the academic world, and you get yourself a little troika, and you figure out basically an, a, a jury of what the rules are and whether the comments meet the standard. I think the problem, to be honest, though, is not going to be fought out at the top level, because I, I don't think we're going to have a lot of... Uh, leaders in in the mold of Donald Trump. I think he's, I mean, I hope he is fairly historically unique. The problem with Twitter, as I said in the column, is that once this precedent is set, it's going to be stretched and pulled and twisted to cover more and more situations. So a problem that happens on Twitter all the time, and you're you're well aware of this, is uh, death threats, rape threats, kidnapping threats, threats of violence. These things are absolutely routine on the platform. In theory, Twitter opposes this. In reality, it's awfully hard to get anything done when these uh, kinds of threats are floating around. Well, again, they have just set a standard that if there's any chance of promoting violence and there's any risk that it will actually do so, they're going to have to act. So how many new Twitter employees are going to be required (laughs) to basically be this real-time moderation army? Personally, I don't think it's possible to do it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Matt, as I said at the top, I mean, the positive side of this potentially is that we start to have a cleansing of social media, though I don't have all that much optimism that's going to happen. But the flip side is this could actually, I thought today, this could be an accelerant almost because they won't. You know they're not going to ban everybody who says anything nasty. 
And if people believe they're supposed to now be banning anything nasty and they won't, it's going to make people even angrier. Yep. Uh, and the, the obvious danger to this is that it's going to be uh, seen as hypocritical, right? Because, of course. Uh, I mean, look, I, this, I don't mean to indulge in any whataboutery or, or both sidesism here, but uh, if the next time there's a large uh, protest in a big U.S. city because uh, horrifically some black man has been killed by law enforcement in controversial circumstances, and I don't mean to sound glib about that, but we all know that is going to happen again. Any local leader who says anything that is in the slightest bit inflammatory would risk getting kicked off Twitter if there's looting or vandalism at a protest. That's right. Rise out. We need people in the streets. Go to the street, whatever. You're exactly right. That's going to be the first thing that's going to come up and say, why is that allowed? Yep. Plus, I mean, nation states use Twitter, uh, foreign embassies, uh, diplomatic correspondents. I mean, what about an armed conflict where two where both sides are tweeting propaganda back and forth at each other. And again, like we, we said before the break, that, that a lot of this is going to be fought out at the, the level of criminal harassment or individual harassment, one person targeting another. And that's going to be a nightmare. But there's going to be more and more cases of this that need to be fought out at the top. And it's not just that Twitter's going to get swamped. I mean, I think they are going to get swamped, but it's not just that they're going to get swamped. They're going to have to make judgment calls, and that's going to be an incredible problem for them. And I don't know if they're ever going to make all the calls right. That's probably too high a standard. This is the sort of thing where you don't get marks for good faith. And if you're seen in any way to be putting your thumb down on one side of the scale and not the other, and as you already noted, even the CEO of Twitter has acknowledged he has an overwhelmingly uh, center or left-leaning workforce, you know, it's not just that it's going to get complicated. As you said, it could be an accelerant. It might help in the long term, but I think there's a real risk of violence in the U.S. in the next couple of weeks. And to be honest with you, this can actually make it worse. Well, yeah, and it's not just Twitter, to be fair. I mean, we've seen in the past couple of days, we've seen, uh, now I, I've never been on Parler. I'm not all that familiar with it. It's like Twitter, I guess, and it's but it's mostly a, a right-wing or a conservative Twitter, we'll call it, and a number, Amazon and Google and Apple have banned it uh, off their platforms, but a number of people already have said, well, wait a second, uh, it's a little hypocritical of you. I mean, how much stuff has Google had over its internet, over its server that has may have led to an incitement of violence? Like, this is a, this is kind of a rabbit hole because there is no end to this, Matt. You can't possibly eliminate all things that you may think are not nice because, as you say, you just sort of swirl down and down and get more and more confusing about what what counts as being not allowed to be on there. You know, I read a stat once that I thought was illustrative, which is that if Google actually wanted to have moderation of all content being put onto YouTube, it would require a workforce of hundreds of thousands who never took a break working in ceaseless rotating eight-hour shifts seven days a week, and all they could do, hundreds of thousands of them on these rotating shifts, was watch each video once. There'd never be any time to go, hey, I should see that again. The amount of content we are churning out on these social media uh, platforms, or even just these increasingly traditional media platforms, is gigantic. And there's no way to keep up with all of it. Some of the companies have turned to uh, artificial intelligence, or some of them use uh, content being flagged by the community, users, as a way of, oh, okay, well, we have a limited number of people, but we'll put them on whatever is drawing a lot of attention. 
I have myself during my career been subjected to criminal harassment via social media. I have been able to work my way through the channels. And in one case, uh, there was a gentleman, and unfortunately, he was a disturbed gentleman who was threatening violence. And I went out and uh, spoke with the police and said, this is the problem. They were able to get somewhere with it, but it took them weeks. It took them many, many weeks. This stuff happens in real time. Yeah, and, and we, we only have a few seconds here, but I wonder now, the other side of this, and this is not your expertise, it's not my expertise, but I wonder if Twitter, uh, in addition to everything else, has opened itself up to legal implications here, because if it says we're getting rid of things that are inflammatory or that could lead to violence, if it doesn't, and then something violent happens, could the victim of that say, look, Twitter, you said you were going to do this, you didn't, look what happened. I, I think Twitter may have opened itself up to litigation here, too. The legal standing of some of these companies is complicated, and I'm just going to confess to you, I don't fully understand this issue, so I'm not going to pretend that I do and try to sound smarter than I am. My understanding is that they actually do have some protection, but that that is a a live debate in the United States that might see it being stripped away, and that might be one of the reasons why Twitter right now is taking actions. We also shouldn't ignore the political side of this, which is to say that the Democrats, in a matter of days, unless something really weird happens, are going to control the White House and both houses of Congress. So Twitter is not only looking at possibly a changing legal landscape, but a changing political landscape as well. you got to assume that's motivating at least some of their actions. Like I say in the column, Twitter's not doing anything they're doing for our benefit. They're doing it for their benefit. They are a private company acting defensively for their own self-interest here. Maybe their self-interests and the common public good will happen to align, but let's not pretend they're the same thing. Matt Gurney, uh, by kicking off Trump, Twitter made the right call, but also shot itself in the foot. You can read it at the National Post right now on their website, nationalpost.com. Matt, always appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. Anytime. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson. He is the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys of ComChoice Realty. The 2014 and 2021 soon-to-be Dundas Citizen of the Year. Sir, how are you this evening? Great, Scott. How are you? I, I am I am well. I am, um, you know, I'm the same as every other day. I, I think I talked to a couple people today. I was doing some interviews, and that seems to be the consensus that people have now reached. I don't know what it took till now. When you say, how are you doing? The answer is, well, same as every day since March. Nothing ever changes. It's like Groundhog Day. It is. It's like Groundhog Day. <laughs> but it's been going on a little too long. This movie should be cut short. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, I, you know, there's a new Groundhog Day that's out. It's not called Groundhog Day. It's a movie on uh, Amazon Prime, if you get that, called Palm Springs. And a sim- similar idea where they're in this time loop. And um, yeah, it's uh, we're, we're in there right now. We're just, you can't get out of this same time loop that every day is the same as the last. The, the one good thing, Don, and I don't know about you, because you, I mean, your job requires you to be out of the house and showing houses and homes and things like that. But um, I have not spent a dime on clothing in the last year. Just don't need year? to. Just a year. That's right. In the last seventeen years, <laughs> yeah, I've spent as much on clothing as I have on haircuts. Uh, so you haven't, yeah. so you, you haven't wore out the track pants and track shorts yet. 
Uh, no, I've, I've, I, I worked my way through about four pairs of, uh, of, you know, comfortable pajamas or fat pants, maybe five pairs. And, um, you know what, if no one's going to see you, who cares? As long as you, as long as the top changes every day, you're fine. Yeah. And that's not even mandatory. It's you get, there's a two day limit that's changed, but yeah, you're right. There's not uh it's, it's hard to get spiced up and have date night at home saying, you know, why don't we go somewhere different? Let's have, let's have dinner in the living room tonight. That's right. Let's, let's dine in the bathtub. Um, yeah. <laughs> actually there should be probably no dining in the bathroom and at all in any part of the bathroom. That's uh, that's a little that's uncomfortable, like, but Sue saw me in the bathtub. She wouldn't want to eat. I'll tell you that. Well, you know, I have many jokes that I want, but I don't want to be mean. So I will leave all of them unsaid okay. and, uh, we can share them later. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you happen by the way, Don, uh, did you happen to watch any football on the weekend? I did watch the bills. Did you? Yeah, I, I, I caught 90% of it. So, yeah, it was uh, – and I flipped around a little bit um, later Saturday and not so much Sunday. My my son had a bit of a surgery on Friday, and nothing terribly serious, but just enough that, you know, he had to be laying around and not doing much. And uh, so this weekend, uh, first time ever that I've done this, I think I was on the couch for 20 hours watching football this weekend. I mean, I've just not done that before. And I'll tell you something. Uh, if they wanted to have triple header football every day, every weekend, um, I might soon approach 800 pounds because I might never leave again if they were to do that. Uh, you know, it's one of those things you and I have talked about this before when leagues on because of circumstances or whatever else, they stumble on an idea and suddenly it works. I got to tell you now it, the games were close. But this worked. This this weekend, I mean, if you were into football at all, um, there was very little chance you were getting much done. No, they and close is 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 a good word, and they were all pretty entertaining. And that's you know, and we and, and I'm sure we've touched on it before that more often than not, the whether it's hockey, baseball, you know, it doesn't have to be the Super Bowl. It's the best game. I mean, there's. You can get two or three of your absolute very best playoff games in the first round, and uh, you know it was. Uh, I talked to a couple of guys today that watched a bunch of it, like you. And they were uh, they were quite impressed, as was I with everything I watched. It was good. The, uh, the 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 doesn't have to be the Super Bowl. March Madness, for example, by comparison. I mean, I would much rather watch the first weekend of March Madness than watch the finals or even the final four. The first weekend is way more exciting. It's just, there's, there's more chances for crazy stuff to happen. And that's what we saw this weekend. I mean, Buffalo with a much better team was by far the second best team on the field in that game. Yet they somehow won. Uh, Indianapolis was a way better team than the bills were in, on Saturday, but Buffalo did on enough Saturday, to, to get by. Um, here's one for you. And I don't know if you ever believe this, this is a cliche that's used in sports occasionally. And I don't know if you believe this or not last night in the game between Pittsburgh and Cleveland, uh, it's my view that Pittsburgh, uh, that Cleveland didn't win that game, that Pittsburgh lost that game. Do you believe such a thing exists? Do you believe in that, in that sort of phrase or that position that there are times when a team doesn't win, the other team loses? Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, when when uh, and it and it can be a combination of a lot of things. I mean, it can be, you know, bad execution, which 
you know, normally doesn't make them the better team. But if you see two or three things happen and go, that never happens. And it was a fluke, whether the pass goes off the shoulder pads or there are a number of, it, it can be officiating calls and penalties and untimely, I'm not blaming the officials, but untimely penalties. You know what I mean? There can be a collage of things that can happen. And the better team doesn't win. And that's why people watch the playoffs, I think. I mean, right? That's why they play the games. Well, I don't think Pittsburgh is a very good team right now. They started 11-0, and and then they were awful for the last third of the season. So I don't necessarily believe that it's a huge upset that Cleveland lost. I mean, Cleveland only won one fewer game than Pittsburgh did. It wasn't like it was a you know, a massive underdog situation. But when the very first snap of the game goes over, Pittsburgh's quarterbacks head into the end zone and Cleveland jumps on it. And it's 13 seconds into the game and you're down a touchdown. And then, you know, a quarterback who's usually pretty consistent starts throwing interceptions. He throws four interceptions in the game. You know, good for Cleveland. I mean, especially for the fans that have suffered with that team. I mean, good for them. But I'm not sure that they win if Pittsburgh plays even a moderately decent game. I mean, it was, they were so bad that I looked at this and now again, that's great for Cleveland. I mean, Buffalo won because Indianapolis made a bunch of goof ups, really. Um, you know, that, that's, that's, as you say, that's how sports plays out, but boy, oh boy, it's, uh, it, it, it is interesting sometimes that a team can get the victory without having to do all that much. Well, and, on the other hand, too, oftentimes, and perhaps Buffalo might be a good example, the better teams win in spite of themselves. I mean, they can have a bad game and still, well, I mean, I've had lots of teams do that where you walk off and go, wow, we better hang on to that one. I mean, we're going to get picked up by the cops leaving town for stealing the points because we really didn't deserve them and all the breaks went your way. And But good teams seem to seem to be able to do that more often than not like if you are a better team you're going to have better plays and it's going to seem like you're luckier when in actual fact you're not you're just a little bit superior but um there's you know it seems to happen more for good teams to win when they don't play as well as they need to again like buffalo Speaking of the NFL, now the team that I'm talking about next was not even in the playoffs. Philadelphia didn't make it, but Philadelphia won the Super Bowl in 2017. Um, they won two, they were, they were in two playoff games the next year. They lost the second one. They were in the playoffs last year. They didn't make the playoffs this year. They had a poor year and they fired their head coach today. And I'm looking at this going, you know, that again, talking about cliches in sports, the guys don't forget how to coach or they don't become bad coaches overnight. Um, is is it that teams are just so impatient these days that if something's not working, we got to make a change immediately? Or it, or do you believe that you know times have changed maybe and coaches' shelf lives are just shorter? That you just the attention span is less and players don't like to listen to the same message as much. And so you know, it's not that he's forgotten how to coach; it's just the things that made him successful no longer work anymore, and his shelf life is gone. Well, the, the, the shelf life's gone, and, you know, you say things change so quickly, and and I think the inference is, you know, as time passed him by, well, I'll tell you how much time's going to pass by before he gets his next job. And that's always the interesting thing, right? He's won a Super Bowl, and, um, and I don't know enough about Philadelphia to uh, critique the team, but I, assuredly, he doesn't have the same squad he had when he won the Super Bowl. 
and that somehow becomes the coach's um, fault. And sometimes, and uh, if you fall Philadelphia more than I do, you'll be able to answer the question. But sometimes the GM knows that some somebody's got to go, and it best not be him. And in in pro sports, oftentimes the general manager will, as soon as the owner tips his hand, saying, "You know, do you think Radley still got it?" You know, I was thinking the same thing, and we could use, you know, we could use a couple linemen, but boy, he's got the basis of a good team. I'm kind of thinking the same thing. The coach is finished because the owner has planted the seed and the next seed's going to be, he's going to go to the coach and say, can you coach it? No, not if he keeps making these deals. So the coach is gone, but he'll, yeah, get, it, he'll have a, he'll, he'll have a job by tomorrow morning. Well, remember that back when they won the Super Bowl, um, Doug Peterson was not, I'm not going to say he was considered a genius, but he was a really highly regarded coach. He, that people will remember he put in that play called the Philly special that, you know, was so unbelievable where, you know, the throwing to the quarterback who had broken out from the backfield. I mean, very creative. And, and again, all of a sudden three seasons later, yeah, you know what? You're 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 kind of done. You're you're out of here. And I I see we see this all the time now. We see this all the time. And I don't know if if it's because teams are just impatient or if it's because the guys have just worn out their welcome. And if that's the case, then it's to me again. It speaks to the attention span of the athletes of this day. That if you can't still listen to a coach who's been there for three or four years, I mean this. Is, he's only been there for five or six years. Um, you know, that, 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 I don't think that speaks great of the athletes. I don't think, and, and NFL teams have, I mean, they have crowds. They don't just have players. I mean, they have, I mean, they have players, obviously. I mean, I mean, they have a lot of players. I mean, there's, there's an enormous group that you have to get to and make them listen. And today's athletes, Generally speaking, with the age group and everything else and the way that they've been brought up on tablets and everything else, they have the attention span of a gnat. So you'll see that shorten up and shorten up and shorten up, I think, as we go through society. Um, I just It's just hard to get players to concentrate and not blame somebody else. It's pretty easy if things aren't going well. Well, if we had a decent coach, we'd be all right. Well, do you pay attention to the one we got? Why? I know more about it than he does. I mean, it, coaching pro sports now is harder and harder every day. So you'll see the shelf life. Barry Trotz is the only one that's got it figured out. And uh, Paul, um, oh, crap, who's coaching the Winnipeg Jets now? He's He's got some shelf life there. But there are Paul not, Maurice. Not all, Paul Maurice, yeah, the former Leafs coach. It, it's hard. It's hard in today's lifestyle to have a have longevity and in, in, as a pro coach you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml don i don't know if you heard the news today but uh former maple leaf former detroit red wing uh head coach mike babcock has been hired as an analyst for nbc's hockey coverage which i find somewhat hilarious because like so many other coaches these guys have no time for the media when they're coaching they think the media is a bunch of idiots. They don't give any answers. They give, you know, the most boring, flat answers humanly possible. But then as soon as they're out of coaching and the money is there, I guess, to go or to the attention, whatever, I don't know what it is, 
they jump on these analyst jobs. It, it, it always seems to me to be odd that they would do this. Uh, especially, <clears throat> especially guys like Babcock, who um, you're right. I don't know if he looked down on media or looked at a, looked at as a necessary evil. Generally, you find those guys that are standoffish and act like that are the ones that never miss a column, never miss reading anything in the paper, and then tell you they don't look at the paper or they don't listen to the radio. And you know that's not true. Babcock, yes, I, you know, you kind of go, really, you're being a bit of a hypocrite here because you may like it, you may do a good job, you may not, or you may just hang on until your next gig, you know, but clearly there's been no lineup to hire him as a coach, so he's maybe looking at a fallback position. But the guys I can see getting into that, Scott, is Bruce Boudreaux, you know, guys that are media friendly, right. mind coming on the radio show. Gabby would talk to anybody. I mean, I know Gabby. I mean, he, he loves talking about hockey. He'd stop and talk to guys in the mall about hockey. Get him. He's got an opinion. It'll be a different opinion. But hire him. Hire Well, he's got a job right now, but yeah, I I know what you're saying. I mean, look, a a guy, you know, who did a a person who did really well on TV for, besides Don Cherry, there was a guy who was a coach who had an opinion and was willing to talk to the media when he was a coach. Uh, You mentioned Paul Maurice a moment ago. I mean, before he went back to coach Winnipeg, you know, I look at this, what I don't get, Don, are some of the TV networks that hire these guys after you've had this person. And I'm not just talking about um, Mike Babcock. I mean, it happens regularly um, where you have these guys who stick it to you over and over again and tell you what a piece of garbage you are. And again, Babcock, I don't think ever did that. He was just seemingly not interested. Uh, But I mean, a guy like Tortorella, um, you know, others. And then when you turn around and hire them, I don't understand that. Why would you not immediately seek out the people who have been media friendly before and have shown an interest in that as opposed to disparaging it all along and then saying, oh, I'm here now. Treat me well. Well, I'm sure I'm sure the hockey executives um, will tell you it all comes down to who do you think is going to watch if it's this guy or this guy? And if you think this guy's going to, you know, assuming they can all do the job, who's going to offer something interesting? You think that's Mike that Babcock? Said, well, I was going to say that said, anybody that's watched Mike Babcock on an extended period of time will know he doesn't have anything very interesting to say. Now, maybe he maybe he interviewed well. Maybe he says, this is the way I'd really like to be. The other thing was just a shtick or the new thing's a shtick. One or the other. But he better be entertaining because if he's like he was and hardly moves his mouth and talks in monotones and if NBC think that's going to help the ratings, the NHL are in trouble. Well, see, I, I'm wondering if it's the other way around. The guy they replaced Babcock for was Mike yeah. Milbury, who was a bit of a loose cannon and who said some stuff that got him in trouble. And before that, it was Jeremy Roenick who said stuff that got him in trouble. They were entertaining, but they said stuff that was problematic. I'm wondering now if they're looking, going, okay, who is the least likely person to say something off the cuff that's going to cause us problems at this point. Let's just take, uh, let's take a guy who, as you say, speaks in monotone and won't say anything other than X's and O's. So there's no chance that we're going to find ourselves having to issue another press release. I guess, I don't know. I think, I think the off the cuff sells. I mean, 
Don I Lester, did, he did it for, th- for 30 years and uh, they live with them because of the ratings. I, I, for the life of me, don't understand how you don't want to be entertaining. I mean, Mike Milbury was a wild card. They knew it. They loved it. And they kept rehiring them. And Ronick, I mean, I, I'd rather see guys like that that have an opinion. And, and the issue is you don't have to have been the best coach. You don't have to have been the best player. You know what I mean? You have to be entertaining and insightful. And that's a, it's an interesting balance. But, boy, when you get it, those guys are a lot of fun to watch. I mean, um, I quite enjoy Brian Burke. Now, I like the kind of hockey teams he built. I think he has something intelligent to say. Uh, he was always good with the media. I think he was a good find. Elliot Friedman, who I don't even know if he knows how to skate or not, is a pretty insightful guy on Hockey Night in Canada. Well, let's go back to Burke for a second, because, again, I, I don't disagree with you. I think you're right. Uh, Brian Burke was a guy who battled with the media a lot, and he would call them, but at least he gave answers that were engaged answers and that were not dismissive. I mean, you could you could disagree with him, and he could call you all kinds of names in the book, but at least it wasn't that he was just showing up and muttering something and leaving as fast as he possibly could. He gave you something there. And that's what so many coaches don't do in sports now. So many coaches just get there and it's a three minute, it's a Bill Belichick situation. It's like three minutes out of your day that is just the giantest pain in the butt ever. But then the second that there's a job available in that same media, they're like, yeah, sure. I'm in. I mean, imagine if Bill Belichick, when he retires from football at some point gets hired (laughs) and then, and then all of a sudden is this gregarious friendly bill belichick it's like well what what's the deal now this isn't even you this and and maybe you're gonna say no this is the real me no when we've watched you for 18 or 19 or whatever it is years now being a sourpuss that's the real you this is just a show now it's not it's not real it's not believable and that that's how i'm kind of going to look at this now we don't see a lot of nbc hockey but if we see mike babcock and he's suddenly a guy who's just the life of the party it's like really that's come on that's a that's a put on well, I do know some guys that know uh, Babcock and, and uh, know him when he had the Stanley Cup and moved it around and said he was great. Very engaging at uh, barbecues and easy to get along with and talk to. And I'm going, really? I said, he's not even what he seems like when, you know, he's in front of the camera. So, okay. You know, I mean, I'll, they, they were, two of them were friends, so I'll take him at face value. They say he's a good guy. Okay. So why not just be like that when you're coaching? It's, it's more entertaining and you're right. You, you go back to Burke or I want to go back to Burke. He would get into it with reporters. If they were writing something he didn't like about his hockey team, because he'd stick up for the moves. He'd stick up for the players and you know, things like you better get your facts straight. I mean, he would, he would call guys out. But you're right. He was there to take it and give it out. Well, let me go to the other side of this then. Okay. So you've got the, you've got the, that, but you've then got the Babcock, the Belichick, you know, the game face thing where you come in and you look like you, you're, you look like you're constipated half the time and you just want to get out of there. And like, you just look miserable. Why, why is it an essential for a coach to look that way? I mean, is it, does it somehow send the message if a coach were to come in and be engaging like Bruce Boudreaux or someone, it, do, do, does Bruce Boudreaux look like a less serious coach or a less successful coach or a weaker coach because he has personality? 
Because I think that's sometimes the message that some of these guys seem to think they're portraying. If I engage with you in any human way, I look like I'm not quite as in charge or I'm not as serious or whatever. No, I, 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 everybody knows it's a job. I mean, there's nothing wrong with going on the bench, being serious, doing your job and then walking, you know, I mean, you're going to carry it. If, if you lose, you're going to carry it for a bit. So they might be a little grumpy and I hope they are because if you bump into a coach that likes losing, he's not going to be my coach for very long, but <clears throat> But for the most part, they can be happy-go-lucky. I mean, they've got some tough decisions. But, you know, they chose that job. I mean, er every time you do a show or write a column, I'm sure everybody doesn't write in and tell you how wonderful you are. I mean, probably 90% of them. But when you put yourself out there in a position where you're going to make decisions and have opinions, you're going to have critics. And you better be able to live with them. But you don't have to look like a sourpuss while you're doing it. Like Babcock always looked like, if there's one guy out here that says, said something or wrote something I didn't like in the last week, why should I be happy to be here? I don't know. You're getting paid $70 million a year. That would make me pretty happy. Yeah, that's right. You can call me. You want to pay me whatever he was making. He was making $8 million a year, I think, with the Leafs. You want to pay yeah. me $8 million a year? I will stand there for an hour a day and have you just like throw obscenities at me and criticize me and throw that's tomatoes right. at me. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. That's fine. I get it. It's part of the... It's part of the the shtick and it's part of the back and forth and it's part of the whole thing. Um, you know, if you're making $12 an hour, maybe not. But I don't think Mike well, Babcock you know, was making $12 an hour. I'm pretty sure if I was there and you were coming at me and somebody was ripping me a new one, I'd go, boys, I get paid $8 million a year to be here. Take all the time you need. Exactly. And you think that, exactly. think that wouldn't infur infuriate somebody? People be it going, would, but he's cocky, arrogant. Well, you want it. Here I am. Keep going. Exactly. I'm with you. I am with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We talked about this months ago, long before we knew what the teams were going to look like, long before we knew anything. I'm going to bring it up to you again because hockey starts on Wednesday night. Canadian division of the NHL. Who ends up on top? Toronto. No question? No question. Nope. Why? Of course there's questions. Of course there's questions, but you gotta be you gotta be committed to your uh, opinion, right? So I think that they've got I think their defense is better. I don't think they have the best goaltending. And I think that may rear its ugly head in the playoffs. But I think their defense is better. And I think they have enough diversity up front this year that it's going to be harder to focus on the top two lines. I think the additions they've made up front will bode well for the fact that it's going to give them a little bit more depth in scoring. I think the additions, I mean, Joe Thornton and I went to high school together, so he's no kid. <laughs> um, some of the other. I think he was, no, I think there. he was there 10 years before you, Don. <laughs> Perhaps. He, uh, but some of the additions are a little bit older, but, you know, they, they can roll these guys in and out of the lineup. They don't have to be there. They don't have to pay pr uh, uh, prominent roles. You look at Spezza, who I think was a nice pickup. I think he can do the job for six to eight minutes a night, 11 minutes if he's going well. I think if, uh, um, if, if the coach utilizes everybody in a proper manner, they're going to be real hard to beat. 
<clears throat> one of the teams that uh, I had not initially pointed at, because I, you know, I think the Leafs will be fine. I think they'll be good. I don't know if they're going to finish first, but one of the teams that I didn't initially look at, but I am now, they were good last year as the Vancouver Canucks. And here's the reason I, I'm, I'm interested in them in particular with this. With the Canadian division now, unlike other years when Toronto, for example, or Montreal or Ottawa in particular, spent most of their time in the Eastern time zone and the travel was not that bad. With all your games now in Canada, you are doing a ton of travel. You're playing in a ton of time zones that's not your own. That's something that the Eastern teams are not used to and the Western teams really are. What kind of advantage is that going to be to a team like Vancouver? Well, it certainly won't hurt them because they're more acclimatized. But now I haven't looked at the schedule, and it's got to be it's got to be out because they're starting Wednesday. <clears throat> but the thought process was that they would go to uh, Edmonton and, and play Edmonton twice, and they spend some time in Edmonton, then they'd go to Vancouver or start in Vancouver and come back. So it's going to make more sense. Um, yes, the teams from the West are used to more travel. But remember, the Lions share their games are in the West as well. They don't play, they don't play any more games in the East than the Leafs used to have to play in the West. So there won't be that much difference, although Vancouver will play nobody in their own time zone. So if you're looking for a disadvantage, maybe it's them. Um, I don't think it'll hurt the rest of them. They're going to be in a bubble. What are they going to do? They're not going to be out golfing. <clears throat> No, they won't be doing that, and and they'll be in their hotel, and they'll be uh, they'll be traveling. I mean, it's going to be a, an interesting time for them. There's not going to be a whole lot of fun, I guess, um, if anyone thought there was. What about Ottawa? I mean, every single person, Don, I think, has pretty much said there are seven teams in the Canadian division. Six of them are pretty good, and then there's Ottawa. Um, and almost everything that I've read has said Ottawa is going to finish last. Ottawa is going to finish last. Ottawa is going to finish last. I'm not convinced Ottawa is going to finish last. I don't think they have all that much talent right now, and the talent they have is very young. But they played pretty hard last year, and I am not convinced that the Ottawa Senators, as much as a lot of people around here would love it if they did, because they can't stand them, uh, I'm not sure they're finishing last in the Canadian division. No, and here's, well, first of all, I, I think they're particularly well coached. They're young. That uh, th- that can go two ways on a team. You know, they can be full of um, energy, um, vinegar, uh, ready to go every night. The biggest thing that the Ottawa Senators have going for them this year is none of the teams think they're going to beat them. So they'll be able to grab some games that they don't deserve, like we talked about earlier in the show. So they'll win some games. They'll create some panic, and I think they're going to, well, I'm going to say I think. I hope they end up ahead of Montreal. <laughs> well, uh, you know, look, my, my sourness analytical. my sourness with the Ottawa Senators, I will never cheer for the Senators. I hope that the Ottawa Senators, that every player on the team um, – comes down with mono or something like nothing life altering, just, you know, and and here's why, because that team is supposed to be the Hamilton team. That team was supposed to be here playing at a cops Coliseum now first Ontario center. I can never cheer for the Ottawa senators or anything. The Ottawa senators do, because that was supposed to be Hamilton until some crazy stuff happened. That was, you know, less so. So I, my, my hope and dream always is, only bad things for the Ottawa Senators until they finally move to Hamilton and acquiesce and come to where they were supposed to be. 
Well, the fundamental difference is Ron Joyce told the truth, and Bruce Firestone wasn't familiar with that concept. But they got the team. They got the team. Yeah, no, that is uh, that's how it worked. But I, I cannot root for the Senators for anything. I, um, you know, and it's and, and honestly, it's got very it's got nothing to do with the city of Ottawa. It's got nothing to do with the players. Quite honestly, it's just the concept of uh, that team. As they say, was every reason to believe that should have been now that should have been Hamilton. To be fair with some of the financial things that have gone on over the years, there's probably a reasonable chance that if that team had come to Hamilton, they would have left. We can have that discussion another day. I I think you can make a case that there may have been some financial problems with a team here, but nonetheless, I would have liked to have seen the city get a chance to try it anyway. I agree. Uh, before we go, before we let you go, I got to ask you about this. I've I've got Facebook up on my screen while we're talking and, and every once in a while I see this, uh, this website that offers personalized video and voice messages from different sports legends. You can pay a certain amount of money and uh, get a certain sports legend to I guess, do your answering machine on your phone message or do a video message for you, whatever. Um, Rick Vive is up for $68. You can get a video message from Rick Vive. Have you got a video message from Rick Vive yet? I, and if you did, I did have... you pay 68 bucks? No, I did <laughs> I did touch base with him between Christmas and New Year's, but I, I didn't pay for it. I, <laughs> I, uh, good luck to him. I mean, it's, uh, there's a lot of athletes doing that type of thing and they'll do, I think you're right. I think they'll do your pre-recording at, uh, for your home telephone. If you have one or I think Joe Bowen might be a lot of fun to have. Yeah. Well, Gilmore is up for 135 on this site and Sittler is 165. Bowen is 60. Five is more than, than Joe Bowen. There you go. Boreas Salming is 60 only. Wendell Clark is 150. Tiger Williams, man, you could do the whole former Leaf connection here. But, you know, I, I asked the question because for those who don't know, uh, Don was uh, once upon a time the guy who brought Rick Vive to play for the Dundas Real McCoys in, uh, well, in Dundas, obviously. Um that's why they're called that. So <laughs> well, he's got a new book out. I, I got I got the book for Christmas, Catch Twenty Two. Are you mentioned? I. It doesn't seem like he talked about his illustrious final coaching position uh, in Dundas. That'll be book two. It'll be the sequel. It'll be a four hundred page sequel just on his time in Dundas. He'd have been wise to mention it. Then he could have had a second book. We will uh, we will eagerly wait for part two of the series, the anthology part two, the Dundas years. <laughs> <laughs> Very well put. I I I I'll, I'm, next time I see him, I'm going to mention that to him. I expect that uh, at least, at, if nothing else, the uh, the new chapter, the new ending in the book of the uh, of the time that he came in and took shots on me when I was on the ice with him, and and how really yeah. uh, that may have been the greatest goaltending he ever experienced shooting on in his life. I don't think he scored, did he? Oh, he scored, Don. He scored. Do you not remember the story? Uh, let yeah, me remind I, I, you quickly and the people listening, because I was on the ice. When Rick Vive joined the Dundas Real McCoys, I spoke to Don, and I said, I want to go on the ice and see if Rick Vive can still shoot. Because it had been... Johnny Bauer bat. Well, yeah, it had been 10 years, and I had played goal growing up, and I still had the old equipment. And I went on the ice, and I asked Vive to come over the blue line like I remember him doing and take a slap shot when he came over the blue line, like I had visualized him doing for the Leafs. Well, what I didn't remember 
was him coming in, not to the blue line and taking a slap shot, coming to the bottom of the face-off circle and then winding up. And the first time he wound up from there, the first thing that crossed my mind, Don, was I'm not entirely sure I am all in for taking a slap shot from Rick Vive in the throat for my job. So I stood up. I played like 1950s, as you say, Johnny Bauer, Terry Sawchuk, and stood up so that I wouldn't die. And the puck hit the far post and went in like a foot off the ice. It was a great shot. And so I went, oh, let's do that again. He comes in and does the same stinking thing where he gets to the bottom of the face-off circle. And I was like, he's going to kill me. And I didn't go down again. And he put the puck off the same place and in. And so the third time I thought, all right, well, at least he knows where it's going. He's got some control. So I go down and I stopped the third one on the same place. And then he comes down the fourth time. And he put it over my shoulder. Once he realized I was going to play and try, he put it over my shoulder. And I was like, okay, you can shoot. I get it. We're done. Don't want to die. <laughs> he, could st- he couldn't skate much by that point, but he could still shoot the puck. It was a fun night had by all. The biggest asset we had in bringing Vive in was the size of the rink. You know, Dundas's ice surface is small, and he did most of his goal scoring, as he will tell those who, would sit around and chat with him from in front of the net because he'd deflect stuff and he would play like that for us too. He'd go park himself in front of the net. And it's what about going down to wing? He said, I'd score two a year like that. Everybody talked about it, including you. Yep. But that wasn't his, uh, that wasn't his go-to move. He went in front of the net and battled for the puck and it was kind of easy to do in Dundas. And then well, he got back how and coach for a year. That's what I remembered. And then I wrote the story about it and I had someone come up. I was at a game later and someone came up and said, you know, you wrote it, you really exaggerated how hard he shoots. And about a minute later, while we're talking, he hit the crossbar. We were standing at about the blue line and Vive hit the crossbar and the puck bounced over our heads off the wall, off the crossbar. And the guy goes, yeah, okay. (laughs) It was like, yeah, no, he can still shoot. He could still shoot. Anyway, we got to run. Don, thanks as always for doing this. Always appreciate you coming on. Have a great week. Thanks a lot, Scott. You too. Bye now. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.